Beloved congregation, the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ begins in the Jordan where he is baptized by John, and immediately after which he goes into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. After that, he comes back to John, and there John points him out to his own disciples, and it is Andrew and the Apostle John who first begin to follow the Lord. They, in turn, call their brothers, James and Peter, who also believe in him. Then Jesus calls Philip, who in turn calls Nathaniel. You know the account that uh, we have of the Lord and Nathaniel at the end of chapter 2 of John. And then the Lord goes into Galilee. And then John, the apostle, records for us the first miracle Jesus does, the turning of water into wine. This is all happening in the year 27 A.D., 1,996 years ago. In the early part of that year, all these things I just described took place, and if we calculate back, it was April 11 of that year that was the Passover. And so after Jesus did his miracle at Cana. He goes over to Capernaum, John tells us, and he's not there for many days because the Passover is coming, and so it's early April, and he heads south to Jerusalem. And John is the only one who tells us what Jesus does there in Jerusalem. We find um, earlier in chapter 3, or chapter 2 rather, the end of chapter 2, that Jesus cleansed the temple. This was the first temple cleansing. He had another one later at the end of his ministry, but the first temple cleansing is during this time, just before April, early April at 27, and then after that, there's the Passover, uh, during which, is a very important verse, if you open your Bible at chapter 2 of John, verse 23, we'll be coming back to this, we read there, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs or miracles which he did. So he's doing miracles on the feast day. What, we're not told, but most likely very similar to other miracles we read, him doing, read of him doing. And then shortly after that, we have the account with Nicodemus. And then Jesus actually spends quite a number of months from April until mid to late fall of that year in Judea, not all in Jerusalem, but in and around Judea. And John tells us that. At the beginning of chapter 4, we read that Jesus is making and baptizing by this time more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did. And it's because of this gaining popularity and the collision course that Jesus sees he's, he's on in Judea with the Pharisees that he now goes back to Galilee to begin the great Galilean ministry. And chapter 4 tells us how he goes to Samaria. And then he comes and he enters back into Cana. And then we have the account of the nobleman's son. So just some context. Everything that's happened so far. And now you've got the account of the nobleman's son as we have read it together. The story is often called the healing of the nobleman's son, and rightly so. 
the son was healed, but it could also be called. And I think in many ways the story is recorded for us for this reason, that this is the account of Jesus dealing with the nobleman's soul. And so let's consider this afternoon the healing of the nobleman's son, which at the same time we can call the dealing with the nobleman's soul. Three points, as they are in your bulletin. First, a pressing need. Second, a growing faith. And then third, I've renamed our third point just a little, an abundant salvation. So first, this pressing need. In verse 46, we're told that a certain nobleman, a certain nobleman, he's from Capernaum. What's a nobleman, boys and girls? Well, it's a royal official, somebody who worked in and for, he worked in the king's court, he worked for the king. The king in those days was Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you may remember, was that terrible king who caused the children of Bethlehem to be killed when Jesus was born. But now three of his sons are ruling and the kingdom is split into three and Herod Antipas rules over Galilee. And so this man most likely is a courtier. He's a royal official in Herod's court. He had a good job. He had a great job. He was an important man. He was an influential man. People looked up to him, but, you know, important and influential people also have needs. No exemptions. Like everyone else in this world, this man too had needs. And at this particular time, we're told he has a great, a pressing need. His son is very sick with a dangerously high fever. And surely this father had done everything he could with the access he would have had to good medical treatment, at least what was good in those days. And But no matter who he called and what he tried, the doctors just couldn't cure his sickness. They probably told him at a certain point, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but there's really nothing more we can do. This fever will not leave him. In fact, this may, he may not survive this. And the thought of death entering his home with all its ruinous power drives this distinguished royal court official to desperation. What can be done? The man has nothing left. You ever feel that way? Have you felt that way before where you're completely helpless? There was nothing you could do to change your situation. You would give anything, but there was nothing that could be done. It's a desperate feeling. Do you know, at times like that, there is always one to whom we can turn. Actually, it should be the very first place we turn to, and so often to our shame, isn't it? We try other things first, and then we go to the Lord. Well, maybe this man, too, had thought about Jesus. It's very likely, in fact, that he had already heard about him. The way John writes in verse 47 tells us that. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea, where he had been now for months, into Galilee, he doesn't say who is Jesus, he acts. He had heard of Jesus. Maybe he had even been at that Passover present earlier in that year when Jesus was doing those miracles, and he had been amazed. But at that time, he didn't have a pressing need, so he went home, and that was the end of it. 
Maybe now he had thought of it. If only I could go reach out to that man. But he's all the way in Judea, and it'll be more than a week before we're back if I go to get him. He was too far away. And what a wonder that when we cannot come to Jesus in our need, Jesus sees us and knows our need and can come to us. That's what we see here. In his all-seeing eye, part of Jesus moving back north in all his providential dealings was also to go to be near this nobleman. Jesus knew this man was in need, and so he comes at this precise time into his backyard there in Cana. Well, think of this man sitting in his home. Maybe he's holding his boy's hand. He's at the bedside, and he's, he's doing what he can all All his means of human help have been fruitless and and he has no other way out and the, the need is so pressing. And then he hears something. Someone enters the room and gives him news. Jesus has come out of Judah and he's in Galilee. You can imagine him maybe whipping his head and saying, Are you sure? Yes, he's at Cana. Really? Yes, we have confirmed reports. He's in Cana, and the man lets go of his son's hand, and he, he gets up, and he goes. He, he leaves his son in the care of others in his family, and he goes right now, no delay, to Cana to find Jesus. Notice, he went himself. Here's a man who had servants galore. He could have picked his best servant to go. No, no time. No, this is very important. He's going himself. See his pressing need. This is his last, his only hope. Could Jesus do a miracle again, even for his son? So he goes with expectation, but no doubt he goes also with fear that it will not be too late by the time he gets back. And yes, he goes also with faith. And 30 kilometers later, late in the day, around 7 p.m., he gets to Cana and he finds Jesus and he begins to plead. He, he beseeches Jesus to come down to Capernaum and to heal his son. He's continually, he's repeatedly asking, please, Lord, please come with me. Please don't, whatever else is happening, please can it wait. Come with me, my son, he's so sick. Please come with me. There's this continual begging. It's a beautiful picture of this father carrying the needs of his sick son to the Lord Jesus. And it's a picture that reminds us of the great blessing it is to have parents that bring you to the Lord. And also of a great privilege for parents to bring your dear children to the Lord. He's the best, most caring and loving provider. He's their covenant Lord, and when your children are living with sickness or when your children are living in sin, you may bring all their needs to Jesus. But now in verse 48, Jesus unexpectedly answers him in a a, a very unexpected way. Unless you, and that's plural, that's why the word people there is in italics, it's not in the original, but it's saying there's a plural here, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's answering the nobleman, but he's actually speaking to everybody around him. Unless all of you people 
see signs and wonders, all of you will not believe. There was a concern that Jesus had generally, not just specifically for this man, but it was a deficiency he saw over and over among the Jews. And now he will use this man and this incident to drive home this point. Jesus is talking about faith. Yes, this man had believed, but according to Jesus, this faith was deficient. It wasn't what it could be or should be. This man, he has come to Jesus with a pressing need, but Jesus sees another pressing need. Actually, the need of the son is not the most pressing one. Jesus could even raise the dead. But the need of this man himself is, is much more pressing, and he's not even aware of it himself, the need of his soul. And the need is this, the need for him to be cast Not on the miracles of Christ, but on the Christ of the miracles. You see what Jesus is getting at here. This man is is looking for a sign. He wants a miracle out of Christ. And he's so focused on what Christ can do rather than on who Christ is. Jesus says elsewhere, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And we apply that here to this context. We could say, What it would it profit this man if Jesus would give him a, a lifetime pass for miracles? If his soul was not firmly settled on the Savior, or would do him no good. And you know, the same is true for us, congregation. We can crave and and ask for many blessings from the Lord, and we do so. And that is good. And and we even say it to one another, don't we? I've been so blessed, so prospered by the Lord. The Lord has given many outward blessings. He's given healings. He's given wondrously into so many of us in particular ways. But do we end in those blessings? Are those gifts our focus? Or is it the giver? The Lord Jesus Himself and His glorious work of saving souls is at our focus. Jesus sees that not only this man's son needs attention, but this man's soul needs attention. His gaze needs to be directed past the miracles to the one who does them? He's come with miraculous faith. And the difference between miraculous faith and true saving faith is that miraculous faith believes that miracles can happen and will come from the Lord, but it ends in those miracles. It doesn't end in the one who does them. And so this man, he's he's come with faith in the miracle, but he hasn't come with faith in Jesus' person. And and that's where the deficiency lies. And, And for these people, and also this man, the miracles form the foundation of their believing. But that's never enough. A mere miraculous faith does not save. And Jesus came to save. And so that's what he's going to get at here with this man. It's the message, actually, of the broader context as well here in John's Gospel. If we go back to the verse that 
I mentioned earlier we will be coming back to in chapter 2 at verse 23. Read it again. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. And then what does it say? When they saw the signs which he did. Same thing. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in our passage. And this explains verses 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So there's an example of how these Jews would latch on to, as it were, the miracles. But now... You see the wonder of divine inspiration now in chapter 4. When Jesus goes through Samaria, at first that seems like an isolated account. Uh, Just another story of the Lord Jesus dealing with the Samaritan woman, but it's not isolated. It fits the broader context perfectly. Jesus must needs go through Samaria for the woman, but also to show through the Samaritans of all people, the despised people. He's going to show through them what true faith looks like and how true faith functions. True faith is based not on miracles. It's founded not on seeing great wonders, but true faith is founded on the Word of Christ. And Look with me in chapter 4, where these Samaritans, at the end of verse 39, the emphasis is on the Word. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay there, and he stays two days, and many more believed because of his signs? No, because of his word, his own word. And then they tell the woman in verse 42, Now we believe. It's true saving faith. Not because of what you said. For we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ. And then they go, they open it right up, the Savior of the world. Samaritans. Genuine, true saving faith. You could overlay Lord's Day 7 over that passage. What is true faith? Very important Lord's Day. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge. We know that this is indeed the Christ. Those Samaritans, they saw no miracles. We're not told of any miracles that they saw. Not one miracle is recorded, and yet they believe. And the point here in verse 48, when Jesus says, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, is exactly that. It's a caution. It's an encouragement to this man, actually, to set his faith not on the miracles of Jesus, but on the Jesus of the miracles. Well, what a pressing need this is also for us today. We so often pray to the Lord for blessings and gifts and provisions, but let us not miss the giver, as we've already said. What the Lord seeks most of all is not that we would use His gifts, but that we would know Him, the giver. You can have many blessings, but if you miss Him, in the end you have nothing. That should be our great aim. 
In John 17, Jesus puts it this way, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. That, He says there, is life eternal. It's not to know lots of miracles and lots of gifts and blessings, good as that is, but it's to know God. And, and don't let this discourage you from asking the Lord for, for blessings and bringing your needs to Him. Jesus doesn't send this man away, but let it discourage us from ending in those blessings. And let it encourage us to see the one from whom all these blessings flow. Well, Jesus' word and work is never in vain, and he will now effectively work in this man with growing faith, our second point. The first words out of his mouth show growth in faith shows that the Lord's Word is already beginning to have an effect on this man. He says, Sir, verse 49, and the Greek word there is kurie, the same word as Lord, Master. And already we see how his gaze is less on the miracles Christ can do and more on the Christ who will do those miracles. But second, we see his growth in, in faith by the way he now lays his case, not as it were, at the hand of Christ, but on the heart of Christ. Lord, come down ere my child die. He's pleading with earnest desire, and he's appealing to the compassion of the Lord. He's more focused on the heart of Christ than on the hand. And then thirdly, we see his perseverance upon Christ as the only way. He doesn't give up. He doesn't doesn't say, well, fine, I guess I'll just go home. No, he, he perseveres, and, and perseverance is a sign of, of faith, of growing faith. Like the Canaanite woman, he, he doesn't give up. He redoubles his efforts. He increases his cries, and he's begging Jesus to come down before his child dies. And still we see here in his words that there remains in his mind a race against time. He still thinks Jesus has to come in the flesh and be in person with his son, and the sooner the better, ideally. But that's a a remaining deficiency in his faith. Uh, He thinks uh, the only way is if Jesus comes. But oh, as Jesus told Nathaniel, he will see greater things than these. But before we go on, let's think about that in light of our own thinking. Is this narrow limiting of Jesus' ability to work ever something we are guilty of? Do we ever think that salvation is only genuine or real if it happens according to our narrowed and limited understanding? Is the Lord bound by our prescription, prescriptions in working his salvation? No, just like he wasn't bound by this man's prescriptions in how he would heal his son. And actually, if we are guilty of that, that is a far more serious thing than even the prescription that this man gave Jesus. For example, does the Lord always work as by a thunderbolt from heaven, so to speak? Does the Lord always work through profound experiences, impressively and undeniably demonstrating His power? Oh, He can and He does. 
But it's a serious danger when we make that the only way the Lord works. It's a trap. And if you are waiting for salvation as if it had to be this, this thunderbolt experience from heaven, it's as if you are saying to God, until and unless I am undeniably and powerfully saved in a dramatic way like so-and-so, or like him or her, I cannot believe. Then we're in a worse place than this man. Then we're limiting God. Has He not worked by the still small voice? Does He not make room in the heart of a child from a tender age, drawing that child to Himself with tenderness and the soft inner workings of His Spirit? Will the Lord not bless the steady, continual diet of of Scripture and instruction given to our children from an early age and, and work in the inmost recesses of their hearts and they may never have anything dramatic. The Lord will save a Hezekiah as well as a Manasseh. He will save a Timothy as well as a Saul. Let us not limit the Lord, congregation. He will work. And He's going to work here in this man's son. But not by going there and touching or being present. He's going to work by His Word. There's that, that Word again. The emphasis in these, verse, these chapters is the Word of Christ. You see how John begins his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. There's this Word that's written over this book. The Word. To the Word and to the testimony. This is the, the focus. And, and that's how the Lord will heal the nobleman's son and at the same time deal with the nobleman's soul. And that's also how He'll work in your life. If you are waiting for salvation. Oh, if you will be saved, it will be by His Word, beloved. Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. It's through the Word. And how encouraging that is to think that God will work in ways far beyond our understanding and our limited even experience. To think that He can save in remarkable ways, ways we've never even considered, just like this nobleman. He's not even thinking of what Jesus is about to do for him. Same with us. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. In things of this life, oh, but also in ways of salvation. You commit yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, do thy great work also in my life and in my family, in our church family. And that's what this nobleman's now going to discover. Jesus is going to grow his faith. He will magnify not his miracles, but his word. He will magnify himself. And he's going to use miracles to do that. That was always the purpose to miracles. See, all these Jews around Jesus who were following him because of all these signs and wonders and miracles, they missed the point of miracles. What was the point to miracles? What, what did the prophets say uh, would, would be happening when Messiah comes? Miracles. Miracles were the evidence. They were a pointer to Messiah, the Savior. Isaiah 35, then the ears 
And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. And for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. He's speaking of glorious things that will happen when Messiah comes. And the point to those miracles is a pointer to Messiah. But these Jews were missing it. They were just gobbling up all the miracles and missing the giver. But now Jesus is going to do this work, this miracle, through his word to draw the nobleman and these others to himself. Here it comes. He says, go your way, your son lives. The wording is perfect. Jesus isn't saying, go home, your son will survive. He isn't saying, go home, in the end it'll be okay. He's saying to him, go home in peace, because right now I have answered your request. It's like the Lord is saying to him, I don't need to come all the way with you, because that would be hours and hours of suspense and anxiety for you. Let's do it this way. I have a better plan. I'll just heal him right now, and you can go home in peace. It's already been done. At this very moment, I'm granting your request, and I give you your son's life. He lives. He is well. And all oh, the response of this man is such an evidence of the growth of faith in his heart by the Lord's power. This word of Christ lands with power on his heart and kindles faith. He believes. It just says, So the man believed the word Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. See, now he's much more like those Samaritans, believing the word. It's the proof of faith. It's a focus on the word. True saving faith clings to the word of Christ, the Word of God. He doesn't doubt it. He hasn't seen any miracles, but he doesn't doubt it. He doesn't ask for any other assurances or proofs. He doesn't say, Lord, come with me anyway, just in case. He just believes and he goes. The Word of Christ was enough. And then thirdly, we come to see how the Lord is not yet done with him, but he's going to do more in his life. There's this abundant salvation that comes uh, to him. Most commentators agree that since it was now evening, and John is using the Roman way of telling time, so the seventh hour then would have been from noon, and so it's seven at night, and now it's getting darker, and it's 30 kilometers back to Capernaum, so he would have stayed the night somewhere or partway on the way home, most likely, and resumed his journey home. But either way, he, he makes his way back home, and, and now he's by himself. He can't speak with the Lord anymore. And I'm sure that Satan also came to try him. doesn't say that. But we know that wherever the Lord works, Satan also works. He doesn't leave God's children alone and he comes with what ifs. What ifs running through this man's mind. And they may have troubled him. We're not told, but 
Regardless, we're left with this impression that his focus is on that word, that powerful word. And that, that's the case, too, for you, child of God. When, when the devil comes and he, he assaults you, he won't leave you alone. You may have doubts and fears and uncertainty, and you may be wrestling with your own deceitful heart and your sin, and, and your sense of the Lord's favor may be gone. And all oh, you go back to the word. It's the only place to go. Also, when you've sinned, it seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? To, when you've sinned and you've, you're, you know that it's not right between you and the Lord, it's counterintuitive to go to the Lord, but that's exactly what He wants you to do. Where else can you go? He calls you to return unto Him, my backsliding children. Because the Word of God will ever be kept. And then that's what you need in, in those times. Well, verse 51 tells us that these servants, they, they meet him. And, and you notice, notice how remarkable it is as they say to him excitedly, your son lives. It's like they're saying he's eating, he's drinking, he's back to his old self. And the man must have been so amazed. But, but then he wants to know something more specifically. He inquires of them. When was it that he began to feel better? Oh, they said yesterday about 7 o'clock last night. Why does the man ask this? Did he doubt whether Jesus had done this? No. But you see, he wants to trace very carefully the work of the Lord Jesus. He wants to prove his work. And that's a good thing. He doesn't say, oh, great, my son is healed. Well, I'll just go and I don't know if it was the Lord's word or not, but all's well that ends well. I'm just going to go home. No, no. He wants to trace the Lord's work very carefully, very conscientiously. And that is a mark of true faith. Miraculous faith is content when the miracle has happened. Miraculous faith is like those nine lepers. They're going on their way and they found that they're cleansed and they're happy and they're done. But true saving faith doesn't stop there. It ends in Christ. It's like that one leper who turned around and he went back to the giver. And that's why this roadside meeting here is so important and why it's recorded for us. It shows us the work of the Lord in this man's heart and life He's tracing the work of the Lord. But there's another reason why this roadside meeting is so important. It shows us that the Lord will confirm His work. The Lord will never forsake the works of His own hands, but He will confirm it. These servants, they're coming, and, and did you catch it? Verse 53 and verse 50 uses the same words. Your son Lives And it's like this man, as he's going down the road, whether he had doubts or not, whatever he was struggling with, he, he's, he's going and he hears an echo of Jesus' own word. It's like the Lord is, is confirming for him his word. It's really true. Just as Jesus has said it, my son lives. And his experience is that the word of God is true, that God keeps his word. What a blessed thing it is 
congregation, when the Lord, His Word is confirmed also in your life, when He does for you what, what you've been leaning on for Him, on Him for, and when, when you've been trusting and you've been depending on the Lord, and then it becomes so real when that Word is confirmed, and when He keeps His promises, when He guides you by His counsel, when He preserves you from harm and danger, when He, he leads you and he, he gives you exactly what He had promised. That's no wonder we read that the man himself believed and his whole household. What an abundant salvation the Lord gives. This day, salvation has come to this house, like he said to Zacchaeus. They believed in Jesus as Savior and as Lord, and Jesus went on in his life to give that life on the cross. Also for this man and for his family. And because of his saving work, they're even now with him in glory. This nobleman and his wife and his son and their other children and most likely these servants. They're with the Lord. It's the fruit of saving faith. And the question tonight for us is, will you join them? Do you have this saving faith in Jesus Christ? Have you also believed the word of the Lord? Have you turned to him with the great pressing need you have of your sin and guilt pleading His mercy, ending not in His deliverances and in His gifts, but in Him. The Lord stands ready to bestow abundant salvation still today, even to each one here today. Child of God, what a blessing it is. You may have this as your heritage, this not all these blessings, not all these gifts, but this God as your heritage. Happy is that man. Happy is that woman that has the God of Jacob for their refuge. Amen. Let's pray.